Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, February 3rd, 2021. On today's episode, we're going to discuss what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta. And joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Senior writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? Writer Twy Tranbui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Oh, hello. <laughs> Something different for you today, Chris. Yeah, you know, I'm gonna change it up. I, you know, can't, I don't want to get stale, Peter. I want the people yeah. at home to be entertained. <laughs> uh, Brad is not with us uh, today. He will be back next week, uh, so you know, you'll get extra what he's been eating then. Uh, but let's oh, let's dive into this. Uh, what we've been doing, I guess, Ben is the only person that's been doing anything this week. So, Ben, what, what have you been doing? Uh, not much, really. Uh, I just uh, did a, a couple of virtual interviews with some Marvel folks. I spoke with um, Jack Schaefer, who is the, I think she's credited technically as the head writer, but for all intents and purposes, she's the showrunner of WandaVision. And then I had a chance to speak with uh, Randall Park, who plays uh, FBI agent Jimmy Wu on that show as well. So both of those uh, interviews are up on SlashFilm.com today or, or probably are by the time you're listening to this if they're not then they will be very soon so um yeah i would just encourage people to to go and and listen to the or not listen but uh read those interviews because um you know some some they were pretty tight-lipped obviously they're in the middle of promoting a show that you know hinges heavily on mystery and things like that as we talk about every week on wandavision um so they couldn't really say too much but i think that there were some decent conversations considering the restrictions that we had can't wait to read those uh, you know, what? I actually did do something this week for a change. I actually went out and got my hair cut, which is something I haven't done in four months, probably five months, I don't know, a long time because California has been in lockdown, but now the, the haircut places, the salons have reopened. So I, so I called my local Supercuts cause that's where I, you know, I just get my haircut at Supercuts and, uh, you know, the phone picks up and it's, uh, uh, this caller cannot be connected. You know, the, the, this phone number has been disconnected. I was like, oh no, my haircut place has gone out of business because of the pandemic. Um, so I found a new haircut place 
and I, I walked to it. Um, and it's actually been like kind of warm here in LA. So I was like, uh, a little bit hot outside. I got my haircut and, uh, I was walking home and I, I like, it was like about a mile down the road and on the side of the street was one of these, I don't know if you call it a scooter or a bicycle. It looks like a scooter, but it has a seat. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Um, it's called wheels. I know there's a bunch of companies that make them. There's like lime scooters. There's... Do you mean a bike, Peter? Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> well, it doesn't have pedals. Yeah, like, I know what you're no... talking about. <laughs> it's an electric scooter, but with a electric scooter that looks like a bike. Because I don't think it's a bike. Like a moped, kind of? Like No, it's a... All right, uh... I'm just going to stop guessing things. I, it sounds gonna... like a moped to me. Yeah, I think yeah, it's it like a moped a like without a moped. an engine, I think, is maybe a decent Like an electric moped? It. Yeah. Um, so basically, you can get this app called it's Wheels, uh, and you log into it, you give them your credit card, and then you scan the barcode on the the bike, moped, scooter, thingy, whatever it is, uh, and it unlocks the, the thing to be ridden on, and uh, you basically can ride it and then drop it off at any, like, you know, mainstream or, like, a, like a, an important intersection of any kind, and then you, like, end your ride, and depending on how long you've used it, you get, like, charged, like, you know, I think I got charged $5, and I used it for, I don't know, 15 minutes or something like that, uh, but I just want to say, guys, that, um, and this thing goes, like, 20 miles per hour, <laughs> so I was going, like, 20 miles per hour, at first I was, like, on the sidewalk, because I was afraid to go into the, into the street with it, which I know is not legal, um, but then like, you know, I'm going 20 miles per hour on the sidewalk and that does not feel safe. And you know why that's probably not illegal. <laughs> like there's like potholes in the sidewalk and like nearly killing me. Uh, so, I, so I go into the, into the street and uh, going 20 miles per hour on like one of these scooter thingies. Why does it feel like, I don't like, obviously we're, we're in cars all the time going, you know, speeds of. 60 70 80 miles per hour and it feels like nothing but like when you're on a bike going like 15 20 miles per hour it feels like i don't know it's exhilarating and it, it, all like the memories of my childhood like being on a bike like the amblin style like peter being on a little bike riding around his neighborhood like totally came back riding this thing um but anyways uh i don't i don't really have any conclusion to this i wasn't even going to talk about this on the podcast but I just want to say I enjoyed my my bike ride, my scooter ride, my moped ride. I don't know I, my wheels ride, and uh, I might end up using it again if if it's, it's on the way to wherever I'm going. But uh, so none of you guys have done one of these things in the past, like a scooter bike situation that you like unlock. Peter, we're too busy covering Sundance to be on scooters right now. <laughs> I did put, do, use one of those scooters when I was um, at Comic-Con last year. I'm a car, Peter. I'm a grown <laughs> man. I don't. <laughs> well, they've been around for years, and I know, like, they're in Austin. So, Jacob, you don't have time for scooters? No, I, I hate the scooter situation in Austin. It's a huge mess, and people who actually live here think it's the worst thing in the world because all these people abandoning scooters in every freaking street corner, and it's a, I hate it. Burn, burn all the scooters. If you're going to use public transportation, you use a bus, 
like a real also person. it feels like it feels really unsafe to use these right now peter because what if someone like rode that scooter and they weren't wearing a mask and they like coughed all over the handles did you at least like wipe it down before you got on it yeah well no no i didn't wipe it down i didn't have um wipes on me but i had sanitizer so i used the sanitizer after before and after all i right. mean before well, doesn't really help but <laughs> i used it after <laughs> so um although i don't know i don't want to get into like the 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 whole safety thing but like it seems to me that even the cdc says that like touch is not is like really not that big of a transmission unless they cough directly onto the handlebars and you know who knows but even even then like you have to touch it within like a certain time and then like put your finger in your mouth like it's like literally like Look, we don't know what you do with your fingers, Peter. Yeah, for all we know, every time you ride a scooter, you you are seized with an urge to put your fingers in your mouth. I mean, you know, we're not judging. We're just saying. Okay. Okay, let's move on to what we've been watching. Uh, Chris, Ben, you you guys have been at Sundance virtually. What what, what have you guys been been watching? I know we did this whole podcast yesterday about it, but there must be some stuff that you haven't talked about yet. Yeah, uh, Chris, you want to talk a little bit about um, coming home in the dark first? Uh, yes, Coming Home in the Dark is an Australian thriller, horror thriller, I guess you could say. And um, it's about this family. They're they're on this this trip to uh, like some scenic locations and everything looks gorgeous and there are mountains and it's it opens in this very serene way. And then while they're they're picnicking, uh, these two random guys come out of nowhere and come up to them. And uh, things go downhill from there. And uh, I really like this. It's a, it's, it is not a pleasant movie. Uh, and uh, I, it's very dark and bleak. And uh, I know it's not going to be for everyone, but uh, it was one of the better things I saw at Sundance. I'm sorry. It's also a New Zealand film, not Australian. Please don't, please don't kill me. New Zealand people who hate when you get mistaken for Australians. <laughs> Um, man, I, I found this to be incredibly bleak and super brutal and just, um, a really interesting movie. And it's kind of tough to talk about because, um, you know, this, this sort of shocking moments happen, happens in the beginning and really like, uh, spins the movie and, and forces it to pivot in a whole different direction. But the one other thing I'll say while trying to be, you know, as vague as possible about it and, and still encourage people, especially people who like, you know, horror and like, uh, super tense, um, movies like that. I think uh, it's worth noting that I think the movie is also about like, um, you know, this idea of uh, of your past coming back to haunt you and and um, like uh, what's a good way to describe it, Chris, like the the central sort of uh, mystery that slowly unravels over the course of the movie. You find out that um, this guy who's just who appears to be just like a, a regular family man, his past is maybe like a little bit more complicated than. Uh, it seems and it's it's sort of like a movie about um about uh some sometimes like standing by and uh and not doing something can be just as bad as participating right, like, in something like indifference where you you're, you're just like oh i didn't do that bad thing but you didn't stop it either you know, right like- and and so like it, it raises these really interesting questions of like how um you know how uh uh, like, I guess how involved is too involved and like whether punishment um, should be warranted in, in certain situations. Like I, I just found myself thinking like the, uh, the villain of this movie could very easily be a protagonist of another movie of a sort of revenge story that we've seen a million times. And it's all about perspective. And I just thought that this movie did a really interesting thing by switching the perspective and 
um, just making you think in a way that uh, that I appreciated. So um, it's called Coming Home in the Dark. Chris, do you know if this one's been picked up yet by any chance? I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so either. Don't quote me on that. I'll, I'll look that up while you talk about the next one. Okay. Um, so this one we alluded to in yesterday's conversation, but we didn't have time to dive into it. So let's let's get into it now, Chris. Uh, this is Prisoners of the Ghostland, which is um, maybe like one of the more high-profile titles out of this year's uh, Sundance Film Festival, which stars Nicolas Cage, and it's directed by uh, Sion Sono, who I, I think both of us have never seen any of his uh, movies before, but he's made something like 50 feature films. And um, I think Jacob is... is you know, pretty well familiar with his work. Um, but this movie is this really unhinged genre mashup that combines these elements of classic Westerns and samurai movies and the Mad Max films and like a little shade of Kung Fu hustle and uh, a really big uh, helping of Escape from New York in there. And Nicolas Cage plays an unnamed character who is like a bank robber who basically gets strapped into a suit that is lined with bombs. And he is uh, he is like sent off on this mission to uh, find the the mayor of Samurai Town, uh, this or the governor, governor excuse me. Yeah. yeah, how dare I screw up his... Uh, Don't get this wrong, Ben. rank, yes. Uh, the governor of Samurai Town basically straps Cage into this suit and says, like, go out and find my adopted granddaughter. She's out in the wasteland outside of this, this heightened, uh, neon-drenched little town that we live in. And, um, and then just, like, chaos happens from there. So... Uh, Chris, what did you think about Prisoners of the Ghostland? Man, I had a lot of fun with this. Uh, I, I, it's, it's, it's a wacky movie, but uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, just as an exercise in style, as an exercise in in weirdness, it's it's very tongue in cheek. Like it's not taking itself seriously. Like there's a character named like the Rat Man, and he re- <laughs> he rescues Nicolas Cage at one point. And there's like this line where this one character is like, you're very fortunate the rat man and his rat clan rescued you. And just like the way that line was delivered had me like laughing my ass off. It's just, it's a very silly, very wacky, very over the top movie. Uh, There's, there's nothing subtle going on here. Um, I've seen some people say like, this is like peak Nicolas Cage. And I honestly think he's, Save for like one or two scenes where he does like do his his yelling thing, he's oddly dialed down in this. I kind of wanted him to be even crazier than he is because I know he could be crazier than he is here. But yeah, there's all this talk about like radioactive waste, and uh, I honestly don't know what the fuck is going on in this movie, and I really didn't care. I was just like just along for the ride. If I were reviewing it, I probably would have scrutinized it more like i i you know when i watch something i'm reviewing i you know i put on my critic hat and i i pick it apart if i have to and with this i you know i knew ben was reviewing this so i was like i'm just gonna watch this for entertainment and that's that's what i got out of it it's i had a lot of fun yeah with my critic hat on it was very difficult to try to discern what exactly the message of this movie was or like what really was was supposed to be happening in any given scene. It's a very dreamlike movie and, and sort of places and, and time periods like drift back and forth. And um, yeah, I'm right there with you in terms of Nicolas Cage's performance too. I feel like, you know, in something like Mandy, which came out a a few years ago and that was also a Sundance movie or, or debuted there. um, That's a movie that where I feel like Nicolas Cage is really dialed up to, you know, whatever 20 on a 10 scale like that's that's the film that if you want to see Nicolas Cage completely 
off the chain on, you know, unleashed, that is the movie to watch. And, and that movie actually has, um, I feel like an emotional undercurrent through it that, that like yeah. channels his rage and raw power into something that feels like it's about something. And this movie feels so chaotic and like so many different, uh, you know, snatches of influences are, um, boiled down into this one thing, but I couldn't really get a grip on like what the movie really was other than just this pastiche of all of these different things. So, um, you know, there, there definitely are some fun moments. Um, I don't want to make it seem like it's a, it's a slog or anything because there's, I mean, just visually speaking, there's so much going on here and like the production design is incredible. Um, and I think especially people who are like big fans of Nicolas Cage and, and his sort of latter stage crazy movies will get a lot out of this. Um, I just don't think it's like, you know, Cage's best work in, in many years or, um, or even like uh, a movie that really has all that much to, to say, at least clearly, <laughs> because most of, the, most of its messaging uh, where it does appear is incredibly muddled and, you know, hidden behind the rat man and all this other insane shit that's going on. So uh, that is Prisoners of the Ghostland. I know that um, I think it's RLJE Entertainment picked this up um right before the festival so i'm i don't know what their release strategy is but I, i'm almost certain it's going to be coming out uh, at some point in 2021 so people will be able to watch prisoners of the Ghostland should they choose uh, probably later this year uh ben before we move on from this can i recommend some sion sono films people yes, who are intrigued do. by this uh so these are all we're at some point various points streaming i recommend checking amazon for some of these or, or hunting down, you know, any way to watch them. Uh, he's not always the easiest guy to watch. He's made a ton of movies in Japan. Uh, I recommend Love Exposure, which is the best four-hour epic about obscure photography you will ever see. Um, it is, it, 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 is it only four hours? I remember seeing this at Fantastic Fest. It is four hours theater. long, yeah. It is four it hours long. I like it was like six hours. It, it, I disagree. This movie flies. It, 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 is one, <laughs> it is the fastest four hours I've ever spent in a movie theater. Uh Love Exposure is incredible and incredibly uh, gonzo and insane. Uh, I think Amazon was streaming it at some point. I recommend Cold Fish, a serial killer movie that is actually really darkly funny and one of those more serious, straightforward movies. Uh, I'm not sure what it's streaming. Why Don't You Play in Hell? It's probably the most widely available of his movies because um, Draft House Films at the time uh, bought it and tried to make a big thing out of it. Uh, it's essentially a collision of a uber-violent Yakuza crime movie and a movie about a bunch of teenage filmmakers who are trying to make it. So it's like it's, it's like an Amblin movie wandered into Goodfellas, and everybody dies. It's great. Uh, and a, a weird one that um, I don't love as much, but it's worth seeking out just for the insanity of it, is Tokyo Tribe, which is a fantasy gangster movie. It's also a rap musical. Um, so it, it, it's pretty much an incredibly violent uh, movie set in this uh, fantastical world where gangsters rule all of Japan, and they frequently break in the song rapping to the camera so uh that's tokyo, tokyo tribe why don't you play in hell cold fish love exposure are all the ones i would seek out if you want to get a taste of sion sono before you can see prisoners of the ghost land cool uh i do want to point out that coming home in the dark has not gotten gotten picked up or acquired yet and as you mentioned ben prisoners of the ghost land has been acquired by rlje films which I didn't know this, but they're actually formerly Image Entertainment. So they've been around for quite a bit, and they own like 3,000 different movies and stuff. So, <laughs> But it's mostly for like home video release and streaming and they broadcast. Also did, uh, they also did Mandy and also um, 
color out of space. So they're they're like in the the crazy Nick Cage business right now. I guess that's like their, <laughs> yeah. their new market. And they're also owned by AMC Networks, which is weird. Uh-huh. But that is weird. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, sorry uh, to interrupt. Uh, but uh, Chris, what else have you been watching? Uh, both I and HT saw uh, not saw I guess watched because we didn't go anywhere but we watched Judas and the Black Messiah which is um wait 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 a second can we stop for a second there is is saw require like you to go somewhere over I always feel like I saw something sounds like you had to leave the house like that's just me in my mind it sounds like i had to go somewhere to, to I, it's a more active yeah whereas like watching of... you're just at home you can just watch you can watch tv but you saw a movie <laughs> these aren't like ironclad rules i'm just <laughs> i'm just saying that's how it sounds to me in my destroyed mind so just go this is rule book yes in, in the chris the chris book of rules that's how it the, plays out the, this is the first I've ever heard of this, so this is interesting. Jacob, you are the managing editor of SlashFilm.com, a big website on the internet. I want to want to hear your thoughts on the differences between those two. I think he, he stepped step away, away for his phone call. Ah, <laughs> I, I angered him so much <laughs> with my... Okay, we'll, we'll just go on without Jacob then. Uh, to tell us about uh, Judas. Judas and the Black Messiah. It's uh, based on the true story of Fred Hampton, who uh, was a member, uh, was the leader of the, of the Black Panthers in Chicago. And the movie is about how um, a man named William O'Neill was uh, tasked with infiltrating the Black Panthers by the FBI to get close to Fred Hampton. And uh, the trailer for this dropped late last year, and it was like one of the best trailers I've ever seen. It's It was such a great trailer that it got me incredibly excited for the movie. And the movie is very good. Uh, I, it's not quite as good as the trailer made me hope it would be. I have a few issues with it, and they're mostly on a script level. Uh, but the performances, um, Daniel Kaluuya and um, Christ, what's his name? I don't have it in front of me. Keith Stanfield. Keith Stanfield. Sorry, I couldn't remember. He, uh, They're both so good in this, especially Keith Stanfield, who uh is playing i would argue the more interesting character here just because i feel like we don't really even get to know that much about fred hampton and who he is and who he was and because the movie is really told from bill o'neill's point of view and it has the keith stanfield just going through so many emotions because you know he's he's you know in, in a sense a rat he's he's ratting out the black panthers of the fbi and he's he's trying to um you know save himself from going to jail and he's conflicted about that and he's just this tortured guy inside and his performance is just so like raw and emotional and uh it's it's worth seeing the movie for those two lead performances alone yeah ht um... (laughs) (laughs) now now it's your turn yeah i basically echo chris's sentiments i saw the trailer when it came out and was just wowed by the trailer and i was so excited to watch it and the movie does deliver it's not as good as that trailer but it's such a a tough and brutal uh biopic more it feels less a biopic it feels almost like a war movie in a way and that's what the the struggle between the black panthers and the u.s government is presented as as a war uh as something that's told in a war zone and you really feel it down to like every single frame and every single performance and yeah the performances are just oh gobsmackingly good i was 
really blown away by Daniel Kaluuya's. I I did like Lakeith Stanfield, but I do I do think that Daniel Kaluuya has a much showier role, and I naturally gravitated towards that a little bit more. But he's just a powerhouse. He's just a, a force of nature in this movie, um, and he's just a like in a way that's like so electrifying and feels like a career best performance for him honestly it's it even after loving him in widows and in get out he just is so dynamite in this role and his character is written to be more of an icon than flesh and blood actual character but i feel like his performance really transcends like any of the 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 um like flaws of the, in that writing so yeah um I highly also I also highly recommend seeing Judas and the Black Messiah for those performances, and um, but you know um, buckle down for something that's pretty hard to watch. Uh, where are people going to be able to see this? On HBO Max because it's one of the Warner Brothers uh, HBO Max and theatrical releases uh, on um, day and date. I think it might already be available. On I think it's like February twelfth. Yeah, February twelfth. Just kidding. <laughs> Okay, uh, I have been watching stuff I still can't talk about because the embargo date is not up. Not, nothing too exciting, uh, but I've been spending my time watching that. And uh, the thing I can talk about is I watched a movie, a Netflix original movie. Actually, before I get into that, I recently took a trip to Hawaii. I talked about that on the podcast. I went to Oahu. And while I was there exploring um, the island and the Hawaii culture, I kind of had this like realization that the the island, like I've visited Kualoa Ranch, which is used in many movies as like an island paradise. It's used in Jurassic Park or in Jurassic World films. It's used in like Jumanji. And I feel like Hawaii is not that often on film used as actual Hawaii. And while I was exploring the island, I was wondering like why? Because there's so much there's so much um history to uh these people that live on the island there's so many traditions uh and it's interesting to see how the people there are kind of trying to balance like honoring uh their legacy and the history of 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 those people and also becoming a modern uh society and like like almost like there's a at odds with one another in in some ways um but it like I feel like there's not enough movies be, like being made, or at least that I have seen, that kind of explore Hawaii on that level. Peter, Someone was going to say something. I actually I talked about this on the Sundance podcast yesterday, so I wasn't going to mention it today. But there's a, a film made by Hawaiian director set in Hawaii called "I Was a Simple Man." It stars Constance Wu uh, as a ghost who is guiding her dying husband through sort of like the his final days and it goes back in time to his life uh, living on Hawaii and sort of post-World War II uh, era and uh, the scars of colonialism and how it reaches back and reaches forward into his life and affects his whole family. And it also touches on like the, the modernization of Hawaii and the tension still between um, the, the natives and the people who come, who uh, come in from the mainland. And uh, it's, Really excellent. I spoke a little bit about it yesterday on the podcast, but I just complete. I just thought of that right away when you were speaking about this. <laughs> I have not listened to that episode quite yet. I'm gonna probably listen to that tonight. Um, but I, I wanted to throw that out 
to you guys, like, is there any movies? Like, I feel like the only movie I can think of is like made by a white director starring a white person, and that is like The Descendants, right? Like, that really Lilo doesn't and even Stitch. Lilo and Stitch actually does sort of touch on <laughs> that colonialist tension too, but not in a way that's like super upfront. It's just kind of in the background. But, you know, it is told from people, from characters who are Native Hawaiians. And uh, there is a little bit of a jab towards the uh, the white sort of re- like residents who live there too. So it's, there's an interesting thing there. It doesn't go as deep as you probably want, but Lilo and Stitch yeah. does kind of a good job about it. Peter, uh, it's not literally Hawaii, it's Samoa, but have you heard of this movie called Hobbs and Shaw? <laughs> <laughs> I ha- I've seen it, Jacob. I, I did see it. No, I'm, I'm, I, I, I am 99% joking, that mo- but that movie is, if it was better, if it was a better movie, we'd be having a conversation about how it deals with, with that tension, because it's, it's there subtly in the, in the third act in a way that a better movie would have explored. So I, I kind of thought about that, uh, even though it's a different Pacific Island, it, it's, it's a similar tension, but Hobbs yeah, and sucks. So, and speaking of bad movies that kind of touch on it, I feel like uh, Cameron, Clo- Cameron Crowe's Aloha also like just barely like hints at this, but then doesn't really uh, explore it in a, in a meaningful way. Um, also, have you ever seen this great movie? It's called Lava and it's about two mountains. That fall in <laughs> Oh, no. Okay. You're stretching this a little too far, Chris. <laughs> uh, no, I know that there's probably movies out there. There's probably, like, independent movies that were filmed on the Hawaiian Islands. Like, I I, I know when I was flying there on Hawaii Hawaiian Airlines, like, there was, like, a whole section of their in-flight entertainment of, like, movies I've never heard of that were all, like, you know, movies about Hawaii set on Hawaii. And I'm, I'm sure there's probably some good ones. So uh, anyways, if you're a listener out there and you know of any good ones, you know, send them in to me at Peter at slash from the comma. I'd be curious because right now we're, we're, we're dealing off Lulu and stitch and lava, the short film from Pixar, which is, I don't think <laughs> the best options. It's um, okay. This all, all brings me to, I saw this trailer a couple weeks ago for this film from Netflix, it's called Finding Ohana, and uh, Ben, I think you wrote this up for the site. You like did n- you were not interested in this movie whatsoever. You thought it looked awful. I mean, I was nicer by I, by the time I was done writing the article. Um, my the rage at uh, what appeared to be just a pure Goonies ripoff um, yeah. had subsided because, as is well documented on this podcast uh, before, I despised the Goonies because I did not grow up and having any sort of uh, nostalgic attachment to that movie. And I watched it as an adult and <laughs> found it to be like completely grating. Um, but I think I think by the time I was done writing that article, I had come around on it and loosened <laughs> up a little bit and, and thought like, oh, this is good for you know the next generation because it looks like a, a movie that's aimed sort of at like I don't know like a Gen Z crowd. Yeah, uh, you know, obviously Goonies is my jam, and I have a nostalgia for that. So I was like, you know, I was just in Hawaii, and like the characters on screen are like have they have t- like t shirt they're wearing t shirts of like places I went to. They're actually visiting places I went to, and like I always like after going someplace like traveling, like watching movies that were filmed there because. I don't know. You kind of get the sense of like, oh, I was over there. You know, it, it, there's like a connect, a greater connection in some way to, to scenes. And so, yeah. so anyways, I was interested in seeing this and it, it came out on Netflix, I think this past week or the week before. So uh, Kitra and I watched it. And this is the story of 
a family who were originally born in Hawaii, that they have been living their whole life in New York City. And uh, the the female protagonist who is played by Kia Ki Pihu. Uh, and it's her, I think her first role of anything from what I can tell of IMDb. <laughs> um, uh, and she's of Hawaiian descent, like as an actress as well. Um, they... B- she is she plays a geocacher so she loves like i don't know it, this this does feel in a way like it was written by like an old man who's like you know you know how par- parkour was cool maybe geocaching's the next thing and he's saying that like you know 20 years after geocaching was a thing but that said um the, the family has to move back to the island uh the grandfather is sick and uh much like the goonies He's going to lose his house if they don't help. And uh, she finds this treasure map uh, in his belongings and goes off uh, with her brother who doesn't want to participate uh, and some other uh, cast of characters on this uh, Goonies meets Temple of Doom treasure hunt of sorts. And I don't know if that doesn't sound good to you, that you're probably you're probably not going to like this movie. Uh, It's funny that I say it's Goonies meets temple of doom because there's actually a cameo in the movie i think it's just like one or two scenes um from i don't know how to pronounce his name ki hugh kwan it's the the actor who played data in the goonie in the goonies and he played uh the kid from temple of doom um but now he's an older man <laughs> uh and it's uh, it's interesting. It's interesting because like this does, it, this was filmed in Hawaii. It was filmed all across Oahu. Uh, they have scenes that like are actually filmed on Kualoa Ranch, but unlike most movies, it's not filmed on Kualoa Ranch to look like another place. It's actually the the treasure. Spoiler alert: is somewhere on Kualoa Ranch. So they sneak into the ranch. And at one point are actually walking through like filming locations being like, why do tourists come here to like, look at the filming location of lost? Like they're having conversations like that. So it's interesting because I, I had just been there and it's, uh, yeah. Um, I, I don't think you usually use Kula ranch as Kula ranch. So, um, most of the film was shot in Hawaii, but the, the cave stuff was actually shot in Thailand because, uh, the caves in Hawaii are Kapu, Kapu. I think it's Kapu. Uh, which means sacred ground. Um, I don't know. This is like a heartwarming family adventure film. I don't think like, you know, adults are going to really be into this. But if you have a family, uh, you know, it's sometimes predictable. The ending gets a little weird. It's uh, it's the directorial debut of Taiwanese director Jude Wang. Uh, she's a TV director who's been working for the last decade on like things like Fresh Off the Boat and Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and some other stuff. And uh, she's attached to direct some comedy starring Aquafina and Karen Gillan. Uh, so I mean, made, made me watch for that. Um, I don't know. I, I liked it more than I thought I was going to like it. Uh, but that said, you know, the uh, I guess the disclaimer that, you know, I had just been there and I have some kind of emotional con- uh, connection to these locations in this island. And I feel like that might be making me like it a little bit more than than other people but um yeah so that is <laughs> that is uh finding ohana 
and it's on Netflix. And oh, I, I didn't get to say it, it does delve into like Hawaiian culture and maybe not like the it's not deeply in the way I wanted to, but you know, more than lava and Lilo and Stitch. So, so uh, yeah, I, I would I would recommend it if you have a family. I'd recommend it. Jacob, what have you been watching? Uh, not much. It's been a very busy week for me where I've been just running around taking care of both professional and personal things. Uh, but I have found some time for two things Chris was right about. <laughs> so I will uh, be, be brief with them since Chris was right about them. In That's what I episodes. like to hear. Put that on a t-shirt. Things Chris was right about. <laughs> I watched The Little Things, a new Denzel Washington uh, serial killer drama. And uh, Denzel is really good in it because he's Denzel and that's what he does. Uh, this movie's garbage. It's real bad. And I, I, it keeps getting worse as you watch it. You, you, like, you keep thinking, oh, this is, this is going to be a 90s throwback cop thriller. That's good. It's going to pick up any time now, right? And it doesn't. It just keeps getting worse until it peters out. And Jared Leto playing a suspected serial killer in it is fine. Like, sometimes Jared Leto uh, meets a performance where he can make it work and he works just fine here. You mean Golden Mal- Globe nominated Ugh, don't get me started. for his role in Little Things. Jared I just want to talk about Rainy Malik for a second, guys, because I'm I'm convinced Rainy Malik's actually a bad actor. He's terrible in Little Things. He is just this black hole of uninteresting choices. And yeah, I forget to put it on the dock here, but I actually followed up Little Things with Doolittle because it was also streaming on HBO Max. Why? Which is a ter- why? It's a terrible movie. But Rainy Malik uh, plays one of the talking animal characters. It was like John Cena and Camille Nanjiani are like giving it their all, like actually giving energy and life to these very terrible talking animal characters. Randy Malik is just a sort of lifeless talking gorilla as opposed to being an interesting talking gorilla. Is he, is he the gorilla? He's, he's one of the animals. I can't tell you which one he was, but he's very terrible. Uh, and I'm just convinced that Randy Malik, uh, because Bohemian Rhapsody's a bad movie. He's bad in it. So I think he's a bad actor. Uh, I know people have seen, I, I've not seen Mr. Robot. But maybe that's the one character he can play. Is he plays the Mister Robot guy, and that's it. Because Rami Malek is terrible, guys. He's he's bad. He's normal Rami Malek ever. I'm I'm worried for No Time to Die now because I don't think he has an interesting choice on screen ever. Tell me I'm wrong. HT, you're a Mister Robot fan. Am I wrong? I am a Mister Robot fan. I think he is really good in Mister Robot, but. The character that he plays in Mr. Robot is a uniquely uncharismatic um, type of unhinged character that I think Rami Malek is uniquely suited to play. So maybe I having only really liked him in in uh, Mr. Robot, I maybe it's just a role that played so well to his sensibilities that it blinded me to not to him not being good in anything else. I don't think I've seen him in anything else that I've liked. He, I didn't like him in Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, I, I honestly forgot about Doolittle until you just mentioned it, and I reviewed that movie. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I remember he was in um, Night at the Museum, and he was fine. Uh, wait he was wait in, a second. He was in The Master? Yeah, very yeah. small role. Yeah, he's one of uh, the people who's... I think he was a, he was okay in um, Short Term 12 as well, but that was like many, many years ago now. So we're, yeah, I don't know what happened to him, but I'm... I guess he digressed. He regressed, yeah. I mean... Anyway, yeah. he's very bad. I, I, didn't, I didn't put this in the doc, but I'll mention it here. I did, I did watch Doolittle because after Little Things, my wife and I were like, oh, that sucked. So we made very strong drinks. And I put on Doolittle as a dare. We watched all of it. Uh, Doolittle's real bad. And uh, Robin Jr. is really bad in it. And he's doing this Welsh accent that is a, a terrible choice because he's not good at the Welsh accent and makes all his dialogue incomprehensible because he's, he's not speaking with a accent he's comfortable with. And... Every 15 minutes, my wife would just literally yell at the screen, who is Doolittle? Because the movie spends so little time explaining who this guy is or who his character is beyond his Welsh accent. Uh, it 
it is a Holmes and Watson level uh, disaster. And I want to read an entire book about how it was made because I know there was reporting last year. This was a 2020 movie, guys. Do Little was 2020. No way. Yes. Oh my god. Yes, it was a January 2020 movie, and and there was a lot of reporting about what went wrong on that set. But I need to know more because it's such a clusterfuck. It is. I I like. I I was getting giddy with how bad it was after a point because it was just. It's just. It's such a terrible movie. Stream on HBO Max, by the way. So do a double feature of the little things and do little on HBO Max if you wanna. uh, If you wanna see a, a Rami Malek double feature of why he should not get hired ever again. Uh, but also on HBO Max, a good thing. And this is something that Chris recommended as well. Uh, Thirty Coins, the uh, HBO Europe uh, Spanish uh, horror miniseries from director Alex de la Iglesias, who I've seen in some of his films at film festivals, and he's a madman. His stuff is really great. Uh, he just no holds barred horror weirdness, and uh, this is him being given like the full power and production of HBO to make it eight episode horror series that's just like him going i'm gonna do whatever i want i'm gonna put every you want ouija boards you want giant monsters you want boxing priests you want bulls dipped in holy water you want catholic uh, conspiracies you it's just everything it is just uh i'm not I haven't finished yet and i don't think the series stuff is wrapped up yet but I'm, I'm watching it slowly because each episode it feels like a complete season of tv uh like more happens in a single episode of 30 coins than in most HBO shows do in their entire runs. So after an episode, I'm like, man, I can't do another one right now. If I do another one, I will literally be exhausted and be taking a nap. Uh, but 30 coins is really spectacular. Chris, uh, it's been a few weeks since you reviewed the first four episodes for us. Uh, since you're ahead of me, has it maintained its momentum? Oh yeah. It's great. I, I love it. It actually, I, I had this thought the mo- the second most recent episode is that it reminds me a lot of the the preacher comics like it feels like a better adaptation of preacher than the preacher tv show i mean it's not set in america so it doesn't have that americana thing to it but the whole like crazy religious madcap conspiracy stuff and demons and all this all the stuff that the the preacher comic did so well feels like it's really (laughs) captured here really well is and uh because i didn't really like the preacher tv show it just didn't have the bite that the comics had so this reminds me a lot of that so if you're a fan of the the preacher comics and you want more of that sort of zany religious weirdness this this is the show for you yeah you're right about that i love the preacher comics and i i liked the preacher tv show for what it was uh, but it never felt dangerous. It never felt like it was actually blasphemous. Like I didn't feel that like the Catholic in me, the Catholic in me, as I was raised Catholic, read the preacher comics and felt my heart pounding. Like oh my god, I, lightning's going to strike me for reading this. And I never felt that while reading while watching the preacher TV show. But I feel that while watching Thirty Coins. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, Thirty Coins, HBO Max. Uh, watch that after you've watched <laughs> the little things and do a little. Okay. <laughs> Ben, how do you follow that up with? I have no idea. Uh, I'm going to try, though. I'm going to just run through a few of the Sundance movies that I watched that uh, I did not talk about yesterday. So I'll kick things off with a film called We're All Going to the World's Fair. This is probably the most lo-fi, sort of low-budget movie that I saw at this year's festival, but it's really interesting. It's um, from this filmmaker named James Schoenbrunn, and uh, it opens with this uh, high school girl who uh, records a video of herself saying 
the same phrase three times, pricking her finger and smearing blood across her computer screen and uh, clicking play and watching this video, which is like this uh, elaborate initiation into a massive multiplayer online role-playing game called The World's Fair, which is supposed to be the internet's scariest online horror game. So this is not a documentary, but it, it kind of feels like one because most of the uh, most of the footage feels um, shot by you know consumer-grade cameras, and and a lot of it is like from her laptop screen looking back at her. It's not it's not like a screen life movie. There are many moments where it uh, you know gets more macro than just only being confined in that way uh, aesthetically. Um, but it's uh, a really interesting movie that it's sort of about, I, I thought it was about like the, um, there, there's so many metaphors in here about what it can feel like to experience uh, gender dysmorphia, which is not a topic that is frequently, um, you know, e- even like touched in, in American film at all. Um, so I think for a lot of people who are maybe like struggling with their identity, especially young people, since this, this protagonist is a high school girl. Um, I think the, this is the kind of movie that, um, I think will mean a lot to a lot of people who, uh, might see themselves in a way that they have not seen themselves in, like I said, in any other real American movies. Um, is this a horror movie? Is it a mystery? It's a thriller. I'm not really sure exactly what kind of movie it is because it's so unique. Um, but uh, I, I found it to be really interesting and, and like worth thinking about. Um, it's very, very lo-fi, very low budget. And and that sort of, um, you know, super low budget uh, feel might throw some people off. But I think the, the passion and the, um, the ideas that this movie grapples with uh, makes it worthy of consideration. So it's called We're All Going to the World's Fair. I have no idea what the you know prospects of this being picked up by any sort of major uh, label are. Frankly, they don't seem good, but I, I do feel like there is a space for somebody to swoop in and pick up this movie that, like I said, I, I think could mean a lot to a lot of people. So um, hopefully people will get a chance to check that out. It's called We're All Going to the World's Fair. Um, let's see, what else? I watched a movie called First Date. Which, um, Peter, this seems like the kind of setup for a movie that you would really, really like. It's it's basically a very simple setup for, uh, it centers on this, this quiet kid named Mike who really, really just wants to take his crush out on a date. And he, uh, his parents take the, the family minivan out on vacation. So he sort of stumbles into scoring a, a date with this, this girl and not having any way to pick her up that night. So he he goes on this quest to get a car to so he can pick her up on this date. And it's one of these like uh, you know, told over the course of one night stories like Go or something like that that you that I know that you're you're a fan of. Um and I, I also like those movies, which is why I thought I was really gonna like this film. But it Wait, wait, up, wait, Ben. Yes. You're setting me up here. You got me interested and now you're gonna tell me it's not good. <laughs> I mean, there are moments, right? Like the the uh, the central relationship between Mike and this girl uh, Kelsey, who's played by Shelby Duclos, who is really really good in this movie. Uh, Mike is played by Tyson Brown, who's also good, but his character is a little bit more hamstrung and, and seems a little bit more, a little bit too reactive to everything that's going on. But uh, Shelby Duclos as Kelsey really feels like a fully fleshed out, like real human being. She actually has like an arc that feels meaningful in the movie. Um, their relationship is the is the heartbeat of the movie and just not enough time is spent on that all the moments where they are talking and hanging out and and being together are uh are really good and and like fun and feel exactly like the kind of movie that i hoped this would be but this whole film 
really beyond that, that initial setup is just um, distraction after distraction after distraction. It's one of those movies where like you, uh, you know, overcome an obstacle and another one or two are thrown up immediately right in your path. And so it kind of feels like, damn, I wish you could just get around to giving me the thing that you want. And I know that's what this movie is trying to do, but it's uh, supporting cast of characters um, are so annoying and just terribly written and really uh, gratingly performed. It feels like at its worst, it's one of those Tarantino knockoffs from the late 90s where, you know, people thought that all all they had to do to make low-level criminals interesting was to have them like bicker with each other about pop culture stuff. Um, and that happens a lot in this in this movie too with these characters that, and you spend so much time with these, you know, little low low level crime lords and and people that Mike this Mike character gets tangled up in as he's trying to just desperately get to this date on time um that you spend so much time with them that it just feels like it it zaps the movie of like the goodness that that is buried at the center of it so uh I was a little disappointed I still think there are some good stuff and and I really think that Shelby Duclos if enough people see this if enough casting directors see this she's going to be a name that we're going to be hearing a lot I think she does a lot with a you know, relatively small part, but she seems very, very, I mean, it's, it's one of her earliest roles and she seems very much like somebody who could easily be, you know, like mixing it up in, in blockbuster stuff in, in the next few years. So um, mm. I feel like it's, it's worth a watch maybe for, for that. Um, and, and these directors, I think have some talent, but the, the script here is just a little bit too, um, too many diversions for my taste, but uh, that film is called first date. And I don't think it's been picked up yet, but you know, maybe worth putting on your your radar fine ben crush my expectations now but hd has also seen a movie that i've been looking forward to from sundance so i'll I'll wait for a few minutes until she probably crushes my (laughs) okay (laughs) that one too okay what else have you been watching uh i saw a film called how it ends which is uh the the it that the title refers to is the world how does the world end it's a movie that uh, takes place on the last day of uh humanity where a giant meteor is hurtling toward the earth um you've probably seen this kind of setup before where basically people have you know whatever it is 12 hours 14 hours or something until the world ends and it's just a, a sort of low budget indie comedy where uh, people sort of wander around and and um just like spend their last day on earth and like what they do and and um you know how how they the relationships that they try to repair and the people that they come in contact with um this movie was shot during the pandemic and you can kind of feel that because uh it really it follows um this one character named i think her name is laura if i'm oh liza uh and she is played by zoe lister jones who is the co-writer and co-director of this movie along with uh, daryl wine who's the other co-writer and director um zoe lister jones is the star of this film she plays this character named liza who uh, basically spends the entire movie walking around with um, a, a younger, a physical manifestation of her younger self, who is played by uh, Kaylee Spaney from um, Devs and Pacific Rim Uprising. And she's been in a bunch of stuff recently. You'll probably recognize her. But um, it, so it's it's this interesting dynamic of this, you know, woman in her late 30s talking to a younger version of herself. And on this last day on Earth, everybody else can suddenly see the younger version. Uh, whereas before, I guess she spent her entire life just, you know, having a personal conversation and, and interaction with this uh, version of, of herself. Uh, but now everybody's just working on the sort of higher consciousness because I guess the world's going to end. And, and um, it's about these 
these two characters who are really just one character sort of, yeah, coming to terms with um, the life that they've spent and, and trying to, uh, it's about them just like walking through Los Angeles, um, which is really weird to see because it was shot during the pandemic. So the streets are all super empty and there's nobody around and it sort of has this weird haunting, uh, haunted feeling to it. Um, but they encounter tons and tons of people along the way. And almost everybody that they encounter is like somebody that you'll recognize. It's, it's all sorts of like famous comedians. And I don't want to give away any of the cameos because that's really the fun of this movie is just watching these two people sort of like breezily stroll through LA and just encounter, you know, a, a couple people at a time and let these two people, you know, they just do like five minutes of comedy and then move on to like another movie. So, it, or another uh, couple rather, or another like, you know, character, it sort of feels like little, uh, a series of little like vignettes in that way. So um, I, I enjoyed this movie. Um, it doesn't always work, but I, I found it to be pretty charming and, and uh, maybe the funniest film that I saw at Sundance. So it's called how it ends. And I'm guessing because of the big names involved here, um, that this one will probably end up being picked up. So I think it, it's worth a watch. I think it, it, there's a little bit more going on here uh, beneath the surface than what initially appears. So how it ends, seek that one out if you can. Uh, I know that a movie called A Glitch in the Matrix is coming out. As a matter of fact, I think it's being released this week, like Friday. Um, I know it's been picked up and I, I'm pretty sure it's hitting VOD on Friday. So this is the newest documentary from uh, Rodney Asher, who is the filmmaker behind this 2012 documentary called Room 237, which was this really deep dive into uh, unconventional readings of uh, The Shining, the Stanley Kubrick classic. So um, you probably have seen that movie or, or know about it. And this movie uh, applies a similar kind of thing to the idea of simulation theory. So Asher is, is fascinated with this this idea that we we all might be living in a simulation, and he talks to um, a bunch of people who uh, you know, from experts to uh, you know, um, like philosophers, and then actual people who he refers to as eyewitnesses, who are people who just like regular people who genuinely believe this and, and share the moments that they've had when they sort of were awakened to what they perceive to be the, the actual truth of this world, that none of what we're living in is actually real. Um, so, you know, I, I it's an, it's a weird <laughs> thing to talk about right now because conspiracy theories have become, um, you know, they, I feel like they used to be harmless and now they are very much not harmless as anybody who's watched the real news can, can tell you. Um, so it, it feels a little icky to even be like giving the idea of conspiracy theories, even one about simulation theory, um, any, uh, oxygen at all. Um, but I, I mean, there is some kind of interesting stuff in here. I just felt like, uh, I really hated a choice that this movie makes late in the film where, um, it really puts you in the head of a person who, murders his entire family because he believes that he's living inside the matrix. And I just thought that the, the depiction of, uh, and, and sort of siding with that character was, um, really kind of despicable. And, um, <laughs> like, I don't know the, the the movie does not acknowledge the number of people who play violent video games and don't go out and commit crimes. And it seems to link, those two things, it feels like something out of the nineties, right? There was all this panic. I remember when I was growing up of like, Oh, if you play violent video games, you're going to go out and, and just murder people on a killing spree and, and stuff like that. Or if you listen to, you know, this type of music or whatever, um, 
you're you're going to be you know opened up to uh, to being you know a school shooter or whatever the hell. And this movie kind of makes that argument where it it like really gives a lot of um, air to this guy who subscribes to that. Like, you know, he was listening to the Drowning Pool song Bodies, like that song where it's like, let the bodies hit the floor uh, when he was murdering his family and just goes out of his way to say, this is these are the lyrics of the song that I was listening to at that time. And it really makes it feel like he's trying to blame his decision and his actions on this pop culture that he was consuming and just wasn't able to like uh, <laughs> to like comprehend on a level that everybody else could. And the movie seems to try to excuse that behavior. And I just found it to be kind of repulsive in the way that it handled that. But I, I, maybe I'm, I'm taking this a little bit too seriously because I have not done a deep dive into the reactions on this, but I've seen, I don't know, 10 or 15 different reactions uh, online since this premiered at Sundance and all of them have been positive. So I'm the only person that I know that have, that has seen this movie and really did not, I found it to be quite distasteful. So, um, you know, well, tell, I guess tell me this, Ben, yes. like this filmmaker typically like presents all these like theories and stuff. And I don't feel like he, like you use the word take a side. I don't feel like he usually takes sides. Yeah. I, I think you could make an argument that he um, spends a lot of time on that particular segment to try to uh, lay the groundwork for um, what is called the matrix defense, which is this legal defense that it's a branch of the insanity plea that uh, has been used by several people um, since this case happened, including the DC sniper tried to use this uh, legal defense. But, so I think you could, you know, to be generous, you could say, oh, he, he spends all this time, you know, putting us inside this character's head and, and headspace. Um, just to set up the idea that this uh, this legal defense exists, but I just felt like it was way too much, and and really, um, yeah, in in a way that it, it felt like it was excusing this person's actions instead of um, just like presenting it. Like there there is a way to do it uh, to tell to get that same information across without um, seemingly siding with this uh, horrific person in in such a way. So um, I don't know. I, I found it to be a little bit muddled. Um, but and kind of like yeah repulsive in certain in certain spots but there are some interesting ideas uh, presented so if you're fascinated by this idea of simulation theory the movie does touch on some some interesting uh, concepts and sort of extrapolations of, of the ideas presented there um, but yeah that, that one segment really just like tanked the whole experience for me so that's called the glitch in the matrix and it comes out later this week if you want to check that out for yourself uh, two more films really quickly. I watched a movie called Searchers, which is a really nice, uh, lovely documentary about online dating in New York City. And it was directed by this filmmaker named uh, Pacho Velez, who um, takes this really interesting aesthetic approach where he puts the human faces in the center of almost all of the frames of this movie, but projects the dating apps of the of those people onto the camera so they are looking straight down the barrel of the lens at the audience as they are swiping left or right on potential matches and it's all about this idea of like what you're looking for in a partner and um why people you know swipe the way that they do in certain times and it's it's presented in this really visually interesting way where it's like you can form a connection with these people because they're staring right at you and they're really looking at what is being projected onto the camera lens. But um, I've never seen, I mean, I, I guess like Errol Morris or something, the documentarian has, has done, you know, similar things in terms of uh, the aesthetics there. I haven't actually seen 
maybe any of his movies now that I think about it. And I should probably <laughs> remedy that. Um, but uh, yeah, I just found this movie to be really fascinating. And also Pacho Velez, the, the director, puts himself in the hot seat, basically. He he gets in on the action and uh, opens up his own profiles. And, and he actually sits down with his mom at a certain point and cycles through a bunch of options and, and gets her perspective on his past relationships and, and some advice about what he should do uh, regarding his love life. And you never really um, see what happens with any of these people and whether they actually go on dates with, with the people that they've connected with, but you see sort of flirtations happen and, and like the beginning of, um, of, of potential relationships. And it just is a, a really nice movie about like this connection that we all have and these vulnerable uh, states that we sometimes put ourselves in, especially in, in the online dating world to, um, to like put a version of yourself out there that, uh, that you're just like waiting and hoping and, you know, crossing your fingers that somebody approves of you and likes you. And I just thought it was a really, um, a nice little movie. So that's called searchers. Wait, and then for- can, can we talk for a second about a filmmaker choosing that title? I know it's not the same title I know as the 1950s, um, yeah. <laughs> John Ford film, but like, that film, The Searchers, is like one of the most influential movies, what of all time? Probably, uh, probably, yeah. <laughs> and and like, I feel like naming your film Searchers means that you're you're never going to turn up number one in the Google search result. You're never going to like like I don't know. That just seems doom for your film. Yeah, it makes sense for you know the the subjects of this movie. Um, it makes sense when you're watching the movie, but yeah, for, as like from a, an SEO perspective and all of that, it just uh, it feels like a mistake. And also, like it's very close to searching, which just came out at Sundance a couple years ago too. So I mean, there's yeah, there, there are maybe better titles, but uh, and who knows? Maybe the title will change by the time it gets picked up, or if it gets picked up. Um, so yeah, we'll have to keep an eye on that, but. Uh, the final movie I saw is a, a documentary called The Sparks Brothers, which is about this um, pop rock band called Sparks. And Edgar Wright directed this movie. It's his first documentary feature. Uh, and it has a ton of people in it. Um, Weird Al Yankovic, Mike Myers, Beck, Fred Armisen, Patton Oswalt, Jason Schwartzman, uh, Flea from Red Hot Chili Peppers. A lot of um, talking heads just um, explaining about this band and how um, super influential they were and have been because their career spans over 50 years and 25 albums and almost like, I think four or 500 songs or something like that. I've never heard of Sparks before, but I know that they're, you know, popular in like, I guess more indie circles, but they are, um, it's, this is such a great documentary because like I said, I've never heard of them before. I've never heard a single one of their songs, but by the time this was over, I was like really into uh, if not all of their their music, because they change so drastically over the course of their long career, and that's one of the the best things about them is just the way that they um, they have the singular vision for what they're trying to do, and they do not give a shit at all about uh, current trends or hype or any of that stuff, and they just like uh, they explore and just go after their own creativity in a way that I don't think any other band has ever done. Um, but I, you know, some of the music because of that, some of the music, uh, resonated much more with me than others because their musical styles just vary so drastically across, you know, the past five decades. Um, and, uh, but, but the guys themselves, Ron and Russell Mayle, who are the, uh, the brothers who form the, the core of this band Sparks, um, are just so, uh, interesting as, as just like documentary subjects. And, um, they are now like, you know, older, probably in their 
what 70s, 60s, 70s, something like that. And uh, maybe even a little bit older and they're still at it and still just making stuff that I think is being really widely respected among people who, you know, are, are into their stuff and, and um, people in the music community. Uh, just, it's really kind of amazing to watch um, just as like a, a, a historical uh like factual thing of like, Hey, this band exists and this is what they've done. And then uh, Edgar Wright does a really great job of like bringing this sort of uh, personal element to it too. And, and humanizing these guys and, and introducing you to them in a way that it makes you feel like, uh, you know, I, I want to follow this and I respect the um, level of craft that they put into everything. And they're just like unerring uh, quest for um, creative, like uh, an uncompromised creative vision. So um, I know that this movie is going to be uh, picked up and, and distributed because it's an Edgar Wright movie and and studios would be insane to not do this. Um, so the Sparks Brothers is the name of that film. And I apologize for talking so long. <laughs> and you're right. They are in their 70s. Uh, the one thing I want to know about this film, because I think you've talked about the topic so much, but Edgar Wright is known for his style like in his films and like mm -hmm. i'm wondering how how does that how does an edgar wright documentary look and feel and how is it different than another documentary uh it is um unsurprisingly very energetic and uh the editing and like my wife and i were watching this on the couch and just occasionally we would just like look at each other and just be like my god can you imagine editing this movie because there are it's so frenetic not in a bad way not in a way that that is off-putting at all but um, there's just so much archival footage that he had to, or he, his, his team, his editors had to go through um, to, uh, to be able to present this information in this way. And it's, it's, like I said, super energetic, very like upbeat. And, um, and there's also like some fun Edgar Wright touches in there um, where he does these like visual puns where like the, the image that we have at the top of our review is these two band members holding up windows and looking at each other. And, uh, Edgar Wright sets up this this little tiny segment of the documentary where that he calls visual puns, where he he's he does so, he provides some narration and says that like this documentary is going to provide a window into the insights of of these guys, and so they're like literally holding up windows, and so there are a lot of little moments like that that feel like oh only Edgar Wright could have done you know something like this, um, you know it, it has that sort of playfulness to it. Very cool. Okay, let's move on to HT. H.G., I'm gonna I'm gonna have you speak about one of the films later on your list because it's the one I from Sundance that I was most curious about, and and you you, you have seen two films here that are about people in in holes. But I, I didn't realize that John in the hole and Marvelous in the black hole. But Marvelous in the black hole is the the film like when I was like looking over the Sundance stuff, I was like, oh, this seems like a Peter movie. So I I want to. So I guess ruin my dreams. Tell me how how is it? Oh, I don't want to ruin your dreams, but I did think of you when I watched this movie because it is a coming of age movie uh, featuring Rhea Perlman as a magician who is a surly sort of magician who often performs for children uh, who befriends a teenage delinquent um, going through the grieving process after her mother had recently died. And um, I don't want to. Yeah, it's it's fine. I'm sorry, Peter. It's sweet. <sighs> And there's like moments of um, fun, stylish flares that I think make it uh, a little bit more than your typical coming of age movie, but it is very slight and kind of forgettable uh, in the end. But it's fun. Uh, 
I haven't um I haven't gotten to write my review for this yet because uh, I just watched it yesterday. But it's a sweet movie. It's uh, directed by Kate Sang, and it follows this uh, teenage delinquent named um uh, what is her name? Uh, Sammy, who uh, is played by Mia Ch- Sech, and uh, she's her mother has recently died. Her father is dating a new woman, and she's uh, and Sammy is just dealing with all of this teenage angst. So she acts out by beating up, uh, by breaking things in her high school bath, in her school bathroom and uh, tattooing little X's all over her leg. Uh, and she imagines this, her anger as a person with just a, a, fa- a black hole as a face. And uh, she eventually gets enrolled in this summer class where she uh, runs into this magician played by Rhea Perlman and they become friends and she gains an interest in magic and through that, through uh, learning to use magic to tell her story and to tell a story as her mother used to do, she starts to, you know, become better and learn about herself. And it's fine, but um, I, I mean, I think you'll like it, Peter, but I just uh, <laughs> found it to be just a little bit too slight for me. Uh, um. And the director here, I think, comes from animation, like wrote some some episodes of Steven Universe and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But this is like their big screen debut. So, uh, so I, uh, I, so I will shouldn't say give that, it a try. I, I, I say check it out because it feels like a movie that's specifically attuned to your interest. And Kate's okay. saying like her animation background does bring like a fun flair to it. Like there are moments where um, – you can see Sammy's thoughts on the screen in little scribbles and little animation um, that kind of jumps around the screen. So that's fun. What about John's hole? Is John in the hole any better? Oh, John in the hole is very fascinating. So it's a very different movie too. Uh, So John in the hole, I actually thought specifically of Jacob when I was watching this because it reminded me essentially of a, a horror movie version of Home Alone, uh, which imagines uh, the Kevin McAllister kid as uh, the worst kind of psychopathic villain that uh, could exist. And um, I'm sh- and Jacob already has that reading of Home Alone, I know. And uh, this movie basically is a more straightforward version of that. It is uh, the directorial debut of Pasquale Sisto, uh, written by Nicholas Jacobone, who wrote Birdman. And it also stars uh, Michael C. Hall and Jennifer L. Uh, as the parents of the titular John, uh, played by Charlie Charlie Shotwell, who starred in Captain Fantastic uh, before. And he's really chilling and gives this great dead-eyed performance as this character who you really don't know what his inner psyche, his inner thoughts are. Um, and he eventually, um, he's this boy who lives in like relative privilege, uh, but it's a very spiritless life. He goes to school, he goes, um, he wanders around the, his like wooded, uh, the woods around his, his very minimalist, uh, like wealthy mansion. And, uh, with his new, toy drone and uh one day he stumbles upon a hole uh which he asks uh, about his parents about and they muse that it's a uh unfinished bunker for people for that was that uh the builder ran out of money for and uh he at one point just um without any explanation decides to drug his parents and his sister played by Tysa Farmiga and drag them into the hole and uh leave them there in a sort of 
half-baked attempt to play at adulthood. And it's very strange, very opaque film. Um, I feel like I, I described it in my review as Home Alone meets the horror, Home Alone as a horror movie meets the um, sort of empty cruelty of Yorgos Lanthimos. It feels very much like one of his films where everything is a little bit chilling and cruel and uh, and bleak and uh, claustrophobic, especially aided by the film's four by three aspect ratio. And I think it was a little too opaque for me, but and I so that's where I couldn't quite connect with it. But uh, it's a it's a very it's a film that definitely uh, makes an impact. And uh, even though I kept just thinking, this is like one of those um, Home Alone is a horror movie trailers that you see on YouTube, but cut into a future film. But it was good, and um, I, I feel like Jacob would enjoy this film specifically because of his hatred for Kevin McAllister and Home Alone. <laughs> <laughs> okay uh what else have you been watching um the other things i've been watching and i have a lot of things so it will be going long and i apologize um first up was one for the road which was a film that i actually was really looking forward to it's directed by um thai director um uh hold on i have his name uh thai director natawit punpiria who directed bad genius uh None of you guys have seen that movie, right? I don't think so. No. Uh, I really, really love Bad Genius. I watched it in 2018. It ca- I think it was a big festival hit when it came out that year. And speaking of Edgar Wright, it reminded me a lot of his kind of playful acrobatic editing style. It's this high school heist thriller um, where these teenagers um, – one of the lead the lead character of which is uh, a scholarship student who comes from a poor background and is kind of brought into this cheating scheme by her wealthy uh, fellow students and uh, basically tries to steal the test answers to uh, help these students out um, and earn a lot of money. It's remind it probably reminds you a lot of the the movie The Perfect Score, but it's a more straightforward like heist version of it, and it's really really good. So I was. Um, it's also streaming on Netflix if you guys want to check it out. But so I was looking forward because of that to see what Natsuat Punpiria had next in store. And that was One for the Road, which is also um, produced by Wong Kar Wai. And what's really interesting about One for the Road uh, is that I felt like I could see a director and producer almost at odds with each other. So One for the Road follows uh, these two sort of estranged friends who um, have been long separated and, and uh, reunite after one of the friends uh, is diagnosed with cancer. And he asks his friend who had been living in America up until then to come back to Thailand and to drive him around the country so that he can uh, reunite uh, with his exes and give them back items that he had kept from them in a sort of farewell tour uh, to the people who he, he, he regretted how they parted or regretted how uh, they left things off in some way. And the first half of this film is this really stylish and wistful um, sort of tapestry of this, these two characters' past and present, the, their memories sort of interplaying with um, the reunions uh, in the present. And um, the way that it works, it works, it feels like that's when... Um, Poonpriya and Wong Kar Wai's sensibilities are matching. It feels like this very stylized, very um, f- like very uh, acrobatic and energetic film meeting some of that, the more wistful and moody aspects that you t- typically see with Wong Kar Wai. 
Um, but at the same time, you can kind of see Hunfria almost getting bored with this kind of premise. Uh, he doesn't really have a patience for the sentimental, I think, because he keeps trying to add in all of these stylish flares that don't really mesh, uh, mesh with the film. Like there's like these montages that are really fun and almost too really broadly comedic. And they're like, they come like right before, right after this really heavy emotional moment. So it's a little bit strange and atonal. And then like in the latter half, like the last half of the movie, it shifts almost abruptly where it becomes this big, this long flashback uh, almost entirely. And uh, it, it turns almost into this sort of soapy, um, like walk down memory lane. And it's like, it's very abrupt. It's almost like a different movie for the last half. So I found it really interesting. There's more interest. There's more things to like about this movie than to dislike. Um, I it was disappointing after I liked Bad Genius so much, uh, and also having Wong Kar Wai as producer, like such a big name on that. But it was it was kind of interesting seeing like two, two very different directors, um, two very different creatives, just like almost at odds with each other throughout this film. So that's one for the road. Um, I think it has been picked up. Uh, by someone i don't really know who yet um but i will recommend watching bad genius which is streaming on netflix <laughs> okay uh, I, I was i was trying to look up uh who's distributing this thing and i uh i can't find it okay never mind i don't think it has been distributed yet um okay. all right next the next movie i watched uh is mayday and this is a movie that uh may be just completely made for me <laughs> It stars Mia Goth as this sort of um, charismatic psychopath who leads an army of lost girls in this war against men as they lure in men through this radio signal, uh, made like calling Mayday, and lure them to their deaths either by storm or luring them to the, the strange island in which they reside uh, where they shoot them down and hunt them as targets. And it stars... Grace, Pat, Grace Van Patten as a young woman who in present day is very unhappily working at this sort of event venue. And uh, while she's working, a fuse malfunction leads her to suddenly uh, be knocked unconscious and wake up in this strange land where she uh, is, is uh, embraced into the fold of Mia Goth and her, her lost girl's army. And there's been a lot of comparisons to Sucker Punch for this, like a more surreal, dreamlike version of Sucker Punch. I haven't seen Sucker Punch, uh, so I can't exactly make that comparison. But I definitely felt like this was a distorted Peter Pan fable where uh, these lost characters banded together in the strange sort of afterlife uh, in a all-female world uh, that is where they kind of have to uh, they're kind of being molded into these um, these weapons and these forces of nature. And Grace Van Patten's character is sort of in the, at this crossroads where she's trying to decide whether she wants to be become that weapon or whether she wants to be uh, a flesh and blood girl like that she uh, that she want that she used to be. And um, it's very dreamlike, very surreal. I really enjoyed it. I really like. It just kind of hit all the notes that I really, I really like. I know that it's gotten more mixed reviews uh, from it 
from other people, but um, it's, you know, got that distorted Peter Pan fable. It's got an all-female world and sort of like this uh, deconstruction of that feminism too, uh, in a way that's really interesting. And it also goes somewhat into the ideas of suicidal ideation, uh, which I found really fascinating, if not completely um, followed through. But um, that's May Day, and uh, that is directed by um, uh, I had this up, but then I like exited out of the things. Karen Zanor. Yeah, uh, I was gonna say in your fir- the first half of the review, I was like, this sounds like a YA adaptation, but then the second half of the review was like, no, no, it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I describing it as like a. a a more surreal sucker punch uh, does it a disservice in a way. I think it's much more interesting than that. Um, but I I really liked it. I don't know if everyone will like it as much as me, but it just hit all the buttons for me. And uh, seeing playing having Mia Goth play like that sort of charismatic uh, psychopathic uh, leader is just really fun. So that's my day. Uh, next on my long list, uh, I watched Crypto Zoo, which. Uh, it's a really, really fascinating, really dazzling uh, animated film. It is um, directed and written by Dash Shaw. And it is set in this, um, it's set in this world where uh, a, it's, set, well, it's in the 70s, um, where a, uh, follow, and follows a hunter of cryptids, which are basically mythical creatures of legends. And she hunts them to attempt to uh, rescue them and, and uh, and put them in a sanctuary called the Crypto Zoo, which is uh, being created by this wealthy benefactor who wants to introduce the world and the public to cryptids uh, in, in a way that will um, make them some money on the side. And really fascinating thing about this, uh, other than it's really dazzling animation, which recalls the, the art style and the animation style of the 1970s French experimental film Fantastic Planet, right down to the stop motion like cutouts that you see, uh, is that it feels like a sort of slyly anti Disney film um, in that in the in the way in its message of um, harnessing the magic of the world and turning it into a consumable and digestible product. And Dash Shaw spoke about how he. Uh, took some inspiration from sort of Disney World and and uh, and also the idea that Walt Disney had for Epcot as a, a livable like community that was more than just a theme park. And eventually after his death, it just got turned into a theme park. But his vision for that was sort of this uh, livable utopia. And that's the vision for, for the crypto zoo, uh, a utopia for these cryptids where they can live without being in fear of abuse or being traded by people who want to use their their magical abilities for their own. Um, but at the end of the day, it is about also selling them for the benefit of, of tourists who gawk at them. So I found that really interesting. But, um, and the animation style, I was almost, I was kind of almost mixed on. So the animation uh, is like this hand-drawn sort of cutout animation. And it's really, really beautiful. Some of the most singular and unique animation that I think I've ever seen on like uh, in an animated film, apart from an experimental film like Fantastic Planet. But uh, it's also ugly in a way that I know is deliberate. 
and I and I know that it's supposed to be speaking to sort of the ugliness of humanity or whatever, uh, but I found it sometimes really unpleasant to look at. And I'm just maybe it's just because I'm really shallow. I like to look at pretty things. <laughs> um, so it and it is like an adult animated film, so it, it's not afraid to shock and um, and turn up the dial on the blood and the gore and those sort of shocking elements, which is some of the elements that I felt like sometimes they went too hard on, but. I don't, I think, but I do think that like overall, it's just one of the most unique and singular things I've ever seen like in animation. So that's CryptoZoo, uh, which I think got picked up by Magnolia um, recently. Uh, yes, it got picked up by Magnolia and uh, it's gotten a lot of praise. I feel like I was more lukewarm to it than a lot of other people who were like, were all in on this. Um, but I, I will say it's, it's, it is very good and very smart and um, very, very unique and beautiful. So that's CryptoZoo. Uh, next off is uh, Strawberry Mansion, a movie that uh, is also getting a lot of praise. It's a surreal fantasy movie uh, about a, a man uh, played by uh, Ken, uh, Kentucky Oddly, who also directs the film, who is a, a an auditor for Dreams. It's set in this sort of, near future where the government uh, taxes dreams, uh, whatever objects or things that appear in your dreams will be taxed by the government. And um, he, uh, he shows up to audit this old lady's dreams one day and uh, ends up being caught in this sort of bigger conspiracy as well as this big cosmic romance. And I like, I like this movie a lot on page. I really actually really liked it visually as well. I think it's, stunning and beautiful in that sort of neo future retro futuristic way but i just found its surrealism to be a little staid and almost inert in some ways and i think it the failing for me was in its central cosmic romance um which i just felt like i couldn't be sold on because the characters and the performances which i'm sure were deliberate were just very like um monotonous and uh like straight-faced and I, I just couldn't find myself invested in the greater stakes, even though this is actually a pretty low stakes film um, because of that. So I just got, I was left a little disappointed. Um, I do think the visuals are amazing. And there are some sequences that are just like out of this world uh, involving like some giant rat men as well. A lot of giant rat people here uh, in this year's Sundance. But um, yeah, that's Strawberry Mansion. Um, it's fine uh i i can't say i loved it but uh definitely one of the most unique films i've seen out of sundance next movie i watched is um prime time so this is a uh hold on i have okay i have a lot of articles pulled up for this okay this is a um polish hostage thriller set on the on new year's eve 1999 uh on the eve of y2k and it deals with some of the um paranoias of of y2k as well um this is a a directed by uh jacob pietek and co-written by pietek and lukas sapsky and i'm sorry for butchering those names i'm very very sorry um and this is uh, it. It basically follows. It sets in this um, 
a TV station, which is uh, holding a, a contest on New Year's Eve uh, that is suddenly taken hostage by a young man who wants to deliver a message to the entire nation, but is cut off by the cameras uh, before he can. And it's basically, it takes place almost in real time as he holds the few people who are in the the studio hostage, which is the the hosts of this this uh, contest and a security guard that he had taken hostage earlier. None of the camera people are there, and everyone else is safely in the in the booth. Um, and he and it definitely does capture the feeling of being in a hostage crisis for four hours. <laughs> I I found this film to be a little on the dull side. I do think it's a great showcase for star Bartas uh, Belenia, who had recently starred in Corpus Christi, which was uh, nominated for an Oscar. Uh, he's really fantastic as the the man who takes uh, the people hostage and seems to be really uncertain and and scared and um, doesn't seem to have a plan in place for what he what he does once he does get to deliver his message. But I feel like the the film's uh, primetime's ideas or it's like it's attempts to speak about the greater relationship between the media and the people and um and and um and all of those things just kind of fall flat to me so it's uh it's fine it's just a it's just a film that I found to be uh a a disappointment and um a bit of, of a slog honestly so that's prime time and I have couple other films i'm sorry guys thank you for holding through uh the next film is at the ready which is a documentary directed directed by Maisie crow it uh it follows a group of high school students in el paso who uh are all trained in this uh sort of military education tra- like law enforcement training program who um want to become border patrol customs officers and it's interesting because all of these Character, all these people in the documentary are actually of Latino uh, or Latinx descent, and um, it the the uh, film follows three uh, students in particular, and uh, it goes follows basically leading up to the uh, re-election of Ted Cruz uh, and the loss of um, of Beto. In, I forgot what year it was. Everything kind of blurs together. Twenty eighteen, I want to say. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, in 2018. And um, they're sort of changing feelings uh, as they're going through this law enforcement program, uh, which they which they look at fondly. The the people who run it, who are all former like police officers or former Border Patrol people, do treat them as like, an extended family in a way. And that's what sort of draws them to that environment that I, because their own family lives or because of their own communities uh, – aren't uh don't have that structure and that support that they that they crave so it's it's a really interesting and um humanizing look at a really fraught subject that um i i i think is really good and um that is uh it i did not get to see boy state that you guys all raved about last year but i feel like there are a lot of similarities between at the ready and boy state uh in terms of just like the subject matter that it tackles. All right. <laughs> Those are all my Sundance movies. Um, I have one more movie that um, I watched that was not for Sundance. I took a break to, uh, briefly because I was going to do an interview for this film, and that's The Mauritanian. Uh, 
which stars Jodie Foster and stars uh, Tahar Rahim uh, as the um, uh, the ooh, hold on uh, as uh, Mahamudu Old Salahi who was a Guantanamo Bay prisoner held uh, in the prison for 14 years without charge. And um, it basically follows the um, the lawyers who are, the humanitarian lawyers played by Jodie Foster and Shailene Woodley, who are sent to review his case as the U.S. government is preparing to uh, make their own charges against him and and uh, send him to the, the chair, essentially. And um, it's... Um, based on the 2015 memoir by Salahi called Guantanamo Diary um, and uh, basically follows this whole legal process. It, it plays out as a pretty straightforward uh, legal paranoid thriller, um, which I think was a, a, a good choice because this film could have easily become a very sort of inspirational prison drama. Um, but I feel like in the process, it does lose some of the human interests of the story. But thankfully, Tahar Rahim is there to sort of carry, uh, and I say carry, that human interest. He is so, so, so excellent. I remember being really wowed by him when he uh, started in his breakout performance in A Prophet, uh, which is a French film from, I think, around 2009. Um, I don't know if any of you guys have seen it, but I highly recommend watching it because he is just fantastic in it. It's also prison drama in which he plays a petty criminal who sort of rises through the ranks in prison and ends up becoming much more of a criminal than he he was when he first entered and here he he plays a character who is just held against his will without um any reason and without any explanation and he goes through just awful awful torture um that is really harrowing to watch the film sometimes goes a little bit too deep into the into the trauma of it all but Tahar Rahim is just phenomenal and I know he's already getting some awards buzz for his uh performance rightly so he's just um uh a powerhouse and so human and so uh affecting in this role and um, you feel you really feel the resilience of the character uh whenever he is on screen there's a there's a there's a nice sort of optimistic touch to his performance that I really, really enjoyed. So um, that's the the Mauritanian, and um, that will be hitting theaters uh, soon on February twelfth. So that's that's all. Those are all the films hey. I watched. <laughs> thanks okay. for thanks for sticking by me, guys. <laughs> thanks for watching and reporting back about all that HD. Uh, and with that, we have reached the end of today's Slash Film Daily. You can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com. And please rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we'll see you tomorrow. Hey, Peter. J- Jacob, there, yeah, uh, there was one thing I wanted to tell you about this, like um, – I forgot to tell you about the scooter thing. You can tell me that after I finish the necessary business uh, of opening a gantuan book of insult, offense, and affrontery, sharp retorts for posts, cost equips, input, put down by Louis A. Safian. And once you know, open up to the writer's section, page 401. How is it taking us this long to get to the writer's section? I think we that may have like been obvious. We may have visited it years ago, but and I'm, re- I'm revisiting it again because there are only so many sections in this book. Uh, Peter. You're one author who's sure to be flooded with pan mail. Oh, because it's getting panned?
you're one author who's sure to be flooded with pan mail. Mm-hmm. People uh, are probably H- throw, throwing tomatoes at me off stage too. Sure, Peter, why would you do this, please? HT, <laughs> uh, uh, she writes books nobody will read and checks nobody will cash. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> ben, Ben, they, they uh, won't cash him because she doesn't have the money in her bank account. That's true. Uh, ben, he wanted to be a novelist badly, and he's achieved his ambition. He's a bad novelist. <laughs> <laughs> That's genuinely funny. I like that. Uh, you know, Chris, his book will leave its mark on literature like chicken pox. <laughs> uh... <laughs> Is that because chicken pox goes away? Peter, his book will leave its <laughs> mark on literature, like chicken pox. Okay. Uh, so we've, re- we've reached the end? Th- that's all? Do you want me to keep going? No. Okay. Can I still tell you about the scooter thing I forgot to tell you about? Sure. Because I, I know you hate these scooters. There's this one feature on the scooter that I didn't use, but you can play music on your iPhone, and through the app, it will Bluetooth connect to the scooter so it'll play the music out of the scooter while you're driving down the street uh i'll move to page 151 <laughs> no. no 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 because okay. my viewpoint on scooters uh my usual greeting is good morning probably 